Minority Retort on X-Ray FM. X-Ray FM. Minority Retort with Jason Lamb. Hey, everybody. It's time for another edition of Minority Retort. My name is Jason Lamb, and I'm the co-host and co-producer of Minority Retort, the comedy show, which features all black and brown comedians. It's hosted by myself, Julia Ramos, and a now-rotating cast of black and brown comedic characters that you can normally see at the Siren Theater, and that, fingers crossed, you'll be able to see down there once again sometime in the near future. But here on this show, we don't just talk to comedians and talk about comedy. We also talk to other talented, creative, and thoughtful people of color who are doing big things in the community and the world at large. Which brings me to today's guest, who is the Director of Markets at Black Food Sovereignty Coalition and the founder and manager of the Black Indigenous Market, Come Through Market. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show, Shiny Flannery. Shiny, how are you? Hey, I mean, I'm doing okay. It's, it's this year that we're having, but given all of that, I'm doing okay. I'm up, right? I'm smiling, I'm laughing at things, so we'll take it, yeah? We absolutely will take it. You know, that's, uh, that's probably the best description of, uh, <laughs> of how to handle things uh, that I've heard, and that's what I'm striving to do uh, in these weird and, you know, and worse days and times uh, that we're living through. Um, but I appreciate you joining me on the show today. Um, absolutely. Yeah, so... So I want to talk about, first, let's talk about what the come through market is. As I mentioned in the, in the bio, you are the, uh, the founder and manager uh, of come through market. But for folks that don't know, what if you can just give us a description of what come through market is? Absolutely. So come through is first and foremost, a farmer's market, and it's a farmer's market by black and indigenous people for black and indigenous people. And of course, we are open to everybody, but we always try to be really clear that there are particular intersections and community that we center at that market. Um, So we have Black, Indigenous, and other folks of color who are farmers and makers, food vendors, gifts, artisans, craftspeople, wellness product makers, all sorts of folks coming through to put out there in the world whatever that thing is that they make, that they want to share back. And so Come Through in particular is an incubator market, meaning that we work primarily with first-time business owners who are just starting to launch or folks who have maybe been running an Instagram business for a couple years but haven't really taken that next step towards putting things down on paper. So we do a lot of support in terms of registering businesses, getting insurance, doing licensing and permits, all of that kind of stuff because we want to see, I want to see a really vibrant and beautiful and alive uh, black and brown Portland. Um, So we've been going at this since 2019 and really come through market started because I'm a farmer and I needed a place to sell the things that I make. I'm up out of my field. I make medicine with plants and I didn't have a place to sell anything. So I created a market and our first year last year was a very small market um, of just about 10 vendors. And we were fortunate to have some space through the Mudbone Grown Pathways to Farming program for beginning farmers of color out at the Oregon Food Bank in Northeast Portland. And it was a tiny little market. It was way off the beaten path. It was not convenient to public transit. 
And so I was really, really fortunate that Black Food Sovereignty came to me this year and asked, did I want to relaunch that market in a bigger format? And so that's what we've been doing since June 29th is just rocking out these markets every couple of weeks, really centering Black and Brown folks doing cool stuff in Portland. And as I understand, the, the next event is coming up uh, this coming Monday, the 12th. Where is it going to be happening? Yeah, so Monday, October 12th is actually Indigenous Peoples Day. And so we're going to be holding some extra celebratory goodness out there. We have the market at a space called the Red on Salmon. And the Red on Salmon is at 831 Southeast Salmon. So it's just at the corner of 8th and Salmon, uh, close in Southeast Portland. The market runs from 11 to 3. And we'll be having um, all sorts of Aztec danza. We'll be having African libations and drumming. We will be having um, like a kiki. We're having the Kiki House of Flora come through um, with some ballroom styles and dancing for us. So we've got some really great stuff going on from noon to three on Monday to really celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day and really trying to bring some awareness around diasporic and indigenous peoples and the ways that we can connect in celebration and in solidarity. Fantastic. So in your bio, it says that you're a queer black farmer, uh, medicine maker, as you mentioned, and decolonizer. And I want to take those one by one, uh, if I might. How did you get into farming? You know, I, nobody would have predicted if, if you went back to where I come from, which is Oakland, and you ask some folks there, like, this, this kid, does this kid grow up to be a farmer? Nobody says yes. And I think a lot of that is, is about the fractured relationship that Black people have with soil and with land in this country, which is understandable. And so as a kid, I was really phobic of dirt. And I developed just like the weirdest personal habits around not getting dirt on my hands. And I think actually spend much time with black kids, that's a really familiar thing. And so you fast forward all these years and I'm in my late thirties and I'm having a pretty common black American experience, which is to say I'm tired, I'm burned out, I'm chronically sick, I'm chronically in pain, everything is miserable. And I just happened to go to a community meeting that involved a bunch of herbalists and gardeners and growers and farmers. And I started having conversations with people who said, hey, you should just come out and connect with the land. And so I went to a couple little community classes um, in Southeast Portland, just learning a little bits here and there about herbs. And I was so intrigued that I started putting seeds in the ground and, you know, just sort of making it up as I went along. I really, really had given into the myth of the green thumb, which is just white supremacist nonsense, this idea that some people can grow plants in a leisurely fashion and others cannot. And learned that growing stuff is just being willing to fail at something and keep doing it and applying some research as you go along. And so as I spent my time out there gardening, you know, maybe three, four years ago, just doing this little plot in my front yard as best I could, I started to hear from people around me all the time, like, hey, what, what are you doing? You look really good. Hey, you look really happy. Hey, your skin is looking really good. And I started to understand that working in the soil, this very complex soil that for Black people in this country, we cannot ever escape that 
the blood and the bones in, of our ancestors are in this soil. And so I think the longer I spent there getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, having my hands in the dirt, the healthier I was getting. And so I've just kind of kept it pushing ever since then. So as I mentioned, I joined the Mudbone Grown Pathways to Farming program because I really didn't know anything about moving from a little garden plot in my front yard into actually farming for production and commercial value. I took more classes. I went to herb school and did a thousand hour immersion study program and just have sort of rolled along to this point now where I help run a black and indigenous farming collective on Wapato Island, or as people say here, Savi Island. But it all just started with being sick and tired and sick of being sick and tired. Well, <laughs> I think we can all relate to that. Um, that's a right? story. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So what would you say that you may have learned about life or about yourself becoming a farmer? I mean, I think the thing that I say over and over again, often while I am like sweaty and screaming in a field is I farm because it increases my resilience. And I say this to myself and I say this to everybody around me, just like we, we do this to increase resilience. And so I think one of the things I've learned is that I didn't really understand what resilience meant. I think that, you know, it's, it's popular right now to talk about grit or to talk about resilience. And I don't think I really understood with any depth how tremendously resilient Black people are and how oppression and trauma really hone that resilience in us, you know? And so finding that I have this strength that I frankly did not think I had, and that the more that I was willing to sit down in that, that strength and that flexibility, which is, is really for me what's at the heart of being resilient, the more I was able to connect with other people, other Black people, other Brown folks, other people in general around me, around the experiences that we were having. So farming has, has taught me fundamentally about resilience and about how resilience can be a tool for connection. And I think that that's really, really important. So, um, as I also said in, in, the, in the bio, you refer to yourself as a medicine maker. So, what, what type of medicine are we, are we talking about? Yeah, so out on the farm, I grow primarily medicinal herbs and African and African-American heritage peppers, which is just sweet and spicy peppers that our folks have been cultivating for a really, really long time. And in terms of the medicinal herbs that I work with, over time, I have really settled into working with the kind of plants that address the conditions that I experience and the conditions that really all Black folks in this country experience, which is anxiety, depression, the way that stress really shapes our bodies and the experience that we have in our bodies are the kinds of things that I like to work with a lot. So I make a lot of oxymels, which an oxymel is a little bit like a tincture. I think most people maybe have heard the word tincture. And an oxymel is just what happens when you take a bunch of herbs and you put it in a jar with apple cider vinegar and with honey and you let that hang out and steep for four to six weeks and drain that out. And so it's a nice way to take a medicine really quickly in a small dosage. And I really just like to acknowledge that not everybody has a good experience or relationship with alcohol. So I try not to make a lot of medicine that has alcohol in it. I make a lot of tea for people who need to get to sleep because I know that our folks do not sleep enough. And when we're sleeping, we're not necessarily resting. So I'm trying to help myself and to help other people that I connect with out there get back into our bodies and not have such a terrible time at being in our bodies, which means that we can breathe and we can eat 
and we can sleep. Yeah, when you, you know, <laughs> when you said that about sleeping but not resting, that really hit home for me. <laughs> I've, I feel like I've felt that way for a, a very long time. So yeah, I, wow, that's, that's, uh, that's amazing that you've been able to, to find that for yourself and, uh, and be able to provide it to, uh, to others. And then also, you know, we said uh, decolonizer uh, yeah. in, in your bio, and I, I wanted to know how you define that. Oh, man. So, right, like decolonizing is such a buzzword right now. And by way of answer, I'll acknowledge a little bit that before I was a farmer, and even while I was a farmer, I was an educator. And so I spent 14 years teaching at community colleges in the Portland area. And before I left community college education, decolonizing was just all of the rage. And everybody was decolonizing a syllabus, and they were decolonizing their classrooms, decolonizing textbooks, everything looked exactly the same. And so when I go out in community, I have this conversation with people a lot about what does it mean to decolonize? And so I want to acknowledge that this isn't my wisdom, this is collected out of community. But I, I really feel like decolonizing must hold at its heart some, some intent, some centering of the sovereignty of Indigenous people. And when I have these conversations in community, particularly community that is mixed between, you know, Black and Latinx and Indigenous people, we talk a lot about what does it mean to hold Indigenous sovereignty most high, most central. And it doesn't mean, to be really clear, that I think there's no place for folks in this country who got here through other means, whether those are people like me who are descended from enslaved Africans who were brought here by boats, whether that's people who have migrated and settled here. But it really does mean understanding that all people are indigenous to someplace and that we will all reach a better state of liberation, of sovereignty, of independence when we work at living in a way that that acknowledges and centers that indigeneity. And of course, that's, that's challenging for Black people. Like, I can't tell you where my people came from in the same way as Indigenous and Native and Latinx siblings that I work with in community, who they can tell me down to, like, a postage stamp where their people came from. And I'm like, I, I have this side of a vast continent. Make a choice. But it really is about how you move through the world and how you understand place and what does it mean for me to be a resident of Portland, Oregon for some 17 years now and to know that I am not of this place even though I want to treat this place like I've become naturalized to it, like I care for it in a way that is next to indigeneity. So it's complicated and it's thorny and I really resist any sort of simple definitions that say what decolonizing is. But I think that decolonizing has to be both a lens and a practice, a way of seeing the world and a way of being in the world. And that I really, really do believe that getting liberation and sovereignty for indigenous people, you know, sort of moving out in concentric circles from from the people who are original to this land, um, moving out through all the other people is good for all of us. It is good for the liberation of all of us. Hmm. That was a very dense and thorough definition and explanation. I I appreciate that so much. And it just kind of makes me think about what's going on, you know, obviously in the in the country and, you know, just the the difficulties that some people would say have come to to a head, but 
you and I know and, and, and many others like us know have been going on for a long time. And they've just, it's, it's, it's spilled over into our, into our streets and it's affected in this town, this majority white town, the whitest city in America, it's, it's so claimed. We see a lot of people, white people being involved in, you know, Black Lives Matter and protesting and, um, and clashing with police and, and, and all the things that are happening uh, in our city. And it, I've been asking people on the show for the past few episodes as things have gone on and, and you know, bubbled over and, and settled down somewhat in recent days, Black people that I've had on the show specifically, if you think that what's gone on and in terms of white people being involved to perpetuate the idea that Black Lives Matter, do you think that it's, what you're seeing is going to make a difference long-term? Because it's, these are things that we've seen before and they haven't been sustainable. Do you think what's happened recently is sustainable and real change can actually happen as a result? Well, I mean, like with so many things, the, the answers and the definitions. So do I think that, what are we on, 130 some days of protests now, I think. Do I think that those will make a difference? Sure. Sure, they will make a difference in, in some people's lives. For who? For who will they make a difference and what kind of difference um, gets a little thornier? I think it's making a difference for white folks. I think that this is a really, in some ways, self-congratulatory moment for liberal white folks who are, as a white woman I know, framed it, you know, putting my body on the line at the protest. And, you know, to that I have a lot of calm down, white girl. But also, um, you know, like, yes, it, it makes a difference in some fashion. Do I think that that difference is meaningful, sustainable in the long term? Do I think that difference will come to end white supremacy as we know it? No, I do not. You know, there's a, um, a brilliant Black woman here in Portland named Danette Gillespie Otto. Um, and Danette is a, a therapist who specializes in working with people who have, you know, post-traumatic slave syndrome and Black folks trauma in this country. And when I talk to her about these kinds of conversations, like, what does it take to make white supremacy end? She would say that social scientists kind of concur right now, some of them, that it would take over 400 years to walk white supremacy culture back to a place where we could all actually sit at a table and talk about how to undo it all. That's a long time. That is a really long time, Jason. 400 years just to have a conversation where we genuinely participated in it. So if I look at things on the, the scope and scale of 400 years and ask myself, do 132 days or so of, of people out on the streets protesting change that? No. Does it change how people walk down a sidewalk next to me when we get back to a place in life where we freely walk down sidewalks? It might, you know, it might. Does it change how people raise their children, white people, how white people raise their children and the way that those children go into community with black and brown children and engage with them? It might, it might make some small changes there. So, you know, it's about how we define our terms and what the scope and scale is that we're looking at. So in the very short term, I think there are some gains to be made. I think that the way that we rub elbows in society with plenty of hand sanitizer plays out, will have some changes. I think that in the scope and scale of a nation that is 
400 years into actively oppressing and killing black people, it's going to take a little bit more, you know? Yeah, I, I, you're at exactly where I'm at. I just, it's very hard for me to be optimistic just because of the history of this country and what it's all rooted in. And, you know, for this small period of time that we're all living through right now to think that that entire system is going to be uprooted and overhauled is, is very, it's a great thought, hopeful thought, but I don't believe in the, in it being a realistic thought, at least something that we're going to see in our lifetime. But I mean, I guess that's the purpose of all of it is, is, is to create that, that hope that some way that, that will happen. But uh, I am much like you. And uh, I think I need to get uh, that woman's number from you. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I need to talk to her. Um, <laughs> you know what, though? So really, we talk about how do I bring together this life of like anti-racism, decolonizing work and farming. It's a conversation I had with her that led to me leaving public education. Because in that conversation where she was explaining to me how like, yo, homie, you're not going to get rid of white supremacy in your actual lifetime. At the end of that day, um, where she was addressing a number of black and brown folks in higher ed, she left me with this question. So I definitely want to ask the listeners this question. And that was, if you just accepted that white supremacy would not end in your lifetime, what would you do with your precious life force? Mm. Right? Like I could, 18 months for 18 months, Jason, every day I got up and had that question echoing, like ringing in my head until I realized, well, I would not walk into this building and be a part of this very large machine anymore. I would take my butt behind out to the field and continue to be uncomfortable and working on getting comfortable with dirt. Like that was a better use for me of my precious life force, which then flowed into starting a market and supporting black and brown um, entrepreneurs and makers and growers. But it really all stemmed from that question. What would you do with your life force? You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly what I was going to ask you is that if you know that we're not going to see that change in our lifetime, like how do you live with that? That was going to be my question. Mm. That's what I struggle with, you know? I was just, so, so I just in September turned 42 and, you know, that comes with a lot of thinking about the nature of aging. And I have found myself having this conversation with a lot of my black friends where I say, you know, I'm so surprised. I love the mystery of blackness. I love the mystery of black people. Like, how is it that they keep killing us, but I stay getting older and happier to be black? Like every day I'm like, whoa, I love blackness just a little more today than I did yesterday. And so <laughs> Like, how do I stay moving with it? I get closer and closer to Black people. I get closer and closer, quite frankly, to Indigenous people, to those intersections where we can really see each other and say, hey, our traumas are not the exact same shape, but well, they really fit together. And that, for me, is what makes it all worthwhile. Like, why do I not drive off of one of these umpteen bridges in this town? It's about Black people. I just love Black people that much. So uh, is that maybe the, the, uh, the origin of the... The name Shiny? <laughs> does, <laughs> does, that, does that create a glow within you that, uh, that's so recognizable uh, to, to others? Uh, no, but it sounds really cool. And I like that story. I might have to add it to the narrative. Really? So 15 or so years ago now, I was going to grad school and really reshaping myself in the way that you do when you have 
those sort of big gateway experiences, whether that's education, whether that's career movement, whether you have a family, whatever it is, those big transformative experiences. For me, that particular one came with an identity reshaping. You know, I had just gotten to Portland, to Oregon, um, from the Bay Area, you know, a couple of years before. I was still trying to figure out where I fit into this place, where the racism in the Pacific Northwest looks really different. I was going through some, some drama with my partner at the time, and I really was trying to remember who had I been before. Before what? I don't know. You know, we ask ourselves these complicated questions, but before, the mythical before, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was in my early 20s, whatever it was, like, who was I before? What were the core things that made up that person? And if I could find those things, how could I use that to shape sort of a call to action for me, for who I wanted to be moving forward? And I really remember saying out loud to myself in the car, I was driving somewhere and I said, oh man, I used to shine. And I thought, well, why can't I still do that? And names are complicated. And, you know, my mother named me Aline, which is a beautiful name, but it's also a job description. She literally meant all I need without the D. And I had lived a number of years being all somebody else needed. um, And then went into having my own adult relationships and you navigate how much of what somebody needs you can be. And I just thought, what I need to be is somebody who stays shining. And I realized that I could just take that power. I could just start to rename myself and put it out there in the world. And just uh, last year, a rapper named Troyman dropped a track on a reality TV show called Streetlight. And he said this thing that I was just like, yeah, yeah, that was the thing right there. And he said, you know, they try to shine, but they never pay the light bill. And so it's just this reminder to myself that like, stay shining, buddy, like you can do that. And also that that involves a certain type of, you know, coming through, being solid with the resources, being solid with the connections, you know, really being grounded and, and staying about, staying about that shining, about that good life. Hmm. And I mean, I'm guessing that's, because the circumstances are going on right now, that, that, that may be harder to do, but somehow you're still able to find a way to do it. I do it. I do it. I mean, That's you know, it's like, it's a choice. Happiness, satisfaction, contentment, however you name it for yourself. It's a choice. It's a thousand tiny little choices every day. It's every time somebody says, hey man, how you doing? And you could choose to say, okay, or you could choose to say like, I'm awesome. Whether or not that was true in the moment, the more you say it, the more likely it is to be true the next time. So I'm going to keep shining no matter how dull it may get on some days. I always lie and say I'm good when I'm asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) No, see, my mom used to tell everyone the truth and it was really embarrassing. You know, like the the grocery store clerk is like, hello, ma'am, how are you? And she's like, well, actually today my back is hurting and this and that and the other and so I really am like, don't tell them the truth don't tell them a lie just get aspirational <laughs> well shiny flannery i appreciate you coming on the show today to tell your truth and uh and tell us all about the work you're doing with the come through market uh once again let people know where they can come through to the come through market and when yeah so we have two more market dates left this year We have October 12th, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day celebration, and we have November 9th for these last two markets. Those are at the Red on Salmon Street. That's 831 Southeast Salmon Street. You can also check us out on Instagram at Come Through PDX. You can check us out 
on Facebook come through PDX and you can stay up on all the projects happening at the Black Food Sovereignty Coalition at Black Food Northwest on Instagram, Black Food PDX on Twitter. Excellent. Excellent. I thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I hope uh, we can have you back on the show again sometime to talk all this stuff out. Yeah, let's talk it out some more. I'm here for it. Fantastic. Take care. Thank you.